You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for this time, this Sunday now, when we can give attention to your word. We pray that you would speak to us and guide us. We know that you're a faithful shepherd who comes to feed your sheep. So do it now, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin this morning in Acts chapter 1, starting here at verse 12. So take a look with me. We read. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I'm really fascinated by this second half of the first chapter of the book of Acts, Here we have this interesting period from the time after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's what we saw last week in the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascended into heaven, and what a mind-blowing experience that must have been for the disciples, but a very important experience, because it really gave them a dividing line to say that the earthly presence of Jesus, his earthly, physically present ministry was over. He he would not return to the earth until he came back in glory. But instead, he was now ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and especially he had gone to heaven to perform what he had promised, saying that when he ascended into heaven, he would send forth the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus gave his disciples his instructions, saying, you wait in Jerusalem and you wait for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I find it very interesting to notice that I believe at this point that the disciples were born again, that they had the Spirit of God. We find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, that Jesus met with his disciples and it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, there is also no doubt that they had not received the Holy Spirit in the fullness that they would on the day of Pentecost, which is to come in Acts chapter 2. That there was an element, there was a dimension of their reception of the Holy Spirit that they had not yet experienced. But Jesus told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for this. Now, in this period that we find... They're going to have a decision to make. And that's what we're going to take a look at together this morning is the rest of Acts chapter one describes us a critical decision that the disciples had to make. And to me, this starts spinning the wheels in my mind about decisions. It especially is on my mind because of the context that I just came from in ministry for the last seven years, serving as a Bible college director of a small international Bible college there in Germany, where we would deal with students who were, oh, the average age was probably 20, 21 years old. And I saw so many students, and Engel and I spent so much time, both collectively and individually, with students that seemed tortured by making decisions. Now, I I know this is true in everybody's life, right? But for some reason, with that particular age group, it seemed especially heavy. 
I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know uh, what person I want to focus my romantic attention on. I don't know what career. I don't know what ministry. I don't know what place I want to live. What does God have for me? And they would be seemingly tortured by decisions that they had to make. I don't think God wants to torture us with the decisions that we have to make. And I think that this Acts chapter 1 teaches us a lot about how God would have us make decisions. And you'll see what I mean as we make our way going along here. First of all, verse 12, it tells us that they returned to Jerusalem. I want you to notice something right off. They were obeying Jesus right there, were they not? What did Jesus tell them to do before he ascended into heaven? He said, return to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Stay there and wait for it. So what did they do? They returned to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives wasn't very far from uh, the, the, uh, the the city of Jerusalem. In those days, it was right outside the city. Today, you'd almost consider it a part of it. But but they didn't forget the, the, the sermon of Jesus right after they heard it. They, they actually did what Jesus told them to do. And even though he was no longer physically present with them, they said, no, we're going to obey Jesus. And so they made this what verse 12 calls a Sabbath day's journey, just a short distance from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem. And it says there in verse 13 that they went up into the upper room. It's kind of interesting We can't say this with certainty, but it's probably true that this was the same upper room where they met for the Last Supper. Because that's also described as being an upper room. And the original wording here in the ancient Greek here in verse 13 says, they went up into the upper room, not just into a upper room. And so, again, we can't say with certainty, but probably the best guess is that this was the same place that they had met for the Last Supper in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, which we're going to read in just a moment. It tells us that there were about 120 disciples present there. Included among them, of course, were the 11 disciples. That is the 12 minus Judas, right? And then there was Mary there, the mother of Jesus. By the way, just for your interest... This is the last mention we have of Mary, the mother of Jesus, here in the New Testament, right there in verse 13. But then we also hear that uh, the brothers of Jesus were also there, such as James and Jude, some of the women who followed Jesus, and others. I do find it interesting that it points out there for us that the brothers of Jesus were now among his followers. Because during the earthly ministry of Jesus, they didn't seem very excited about his work. Matter of fact, sometimes they treated Jesus as if he was a crazy man. And they wanted to reject him and they weren't very excited about his ministry, which I suppose we should cut them a little bit of slack for. Could you imagine what it would be like growing up in the home and your brother is actually the Messiah, the Son of God? That's a lot. You know, you get compared to your brothers and sisters But how many times must have they heard it, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus? (laughs) You you can't blame them for having some weird family dynamics going on there, right? But the glorious thing is, is after the resurrection of Jesus, they did believe in him. They did trust him. They they, they came to say, listen, our relationship with Jesus has half brothers. You know, we share the same mother, but not the same father, of course. Our relationship with Jesus has half brothers. That's important and that's valuable. But, But it's not more important than our relationship with him is he's our savior. He's our Lord. And they were numbered among those 120 disciples that were gathered together there in the upper room. Matter of fact, it says beautifully in verse 14, if you look at it there, 
It says that they all continued with one accord. Isn't that beautiful? Now there is some notable unity. It's some notable fellowship. You know, in the Gospels, it seemed like the disciples were always fighting and always bickering, right? And what had changed? You know, in some ways, those guys hadn't changed at all. Peter still had his history of denying the Lord. And Matthew was still a tax collector, or at least a former tax collector. Simon was still a zealot. And their differences were still there. But the resurrected Jesus in their midst was greater than any of their differences. And that's what made them unified and in fellowship. And friends, can I say, that's how it must be among us as well. I love looking out among us and seeing a diverse group of people. And most of us would probably never hang out with each other unless it was our common bond in Jesus Christ, right? But because we have this common bond in Jesus, that's greater than any of the differences that we possess. And that's how it was for the disciples. So now, instead of it was during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, when they always seem to be fighting, they always seem to be arguing, here they are unified and they're in one accord, just as it says there in verse 14. And even better, not only uh, you could say back in verse 12, they were obedient because they returned to Jerusalem. Not only could you say that they were unified and in fellowship, but verse 14 tells us that they were also notable for their prayer. Did you see that? It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. I love that. It says that they all prayed. It says that they continued in prayer. And they continued, not just in prayer, but it says prayer and supplication. Do you know the idea of supplication in the Bible? It's a way of referring to prayer, but it's prayer with a note of desperation. It's prayer with a note of earnestness in it. God, I have to rely on you. I'm I'm supplicating you, God. It's a way of offering yourself to God in prayer with great devotion and earnestness. Now, I think this is already something really remarkable to see. Just from verses 12, 13, and 14, we see something notable about the disciples. They're obeying Jesus, right? They went back to Jerusalem. They're unified. They're in fellowship together. They're hanging together as one team. And then they are praying. They are seeking the Lord Jesus in prayer. Continuing on here, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples... Altogether, the number of their names is about 120 and said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. Well, that's pretty vivid, isn't it? And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. And then now Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. I find it interesting that here in verse 15, Peter stands up and takes a natural leadership role among the disciples. You know, I have no problem with saying that Peter was a leader among the disciples. It's very evident, right? It's all through the Gospels, isn't it? Matter of fact, whenever there's a list made of the disciples, Peter's name is always first. 
You see him as sort of a spokesman for the disciples. He's always there prominent among them. And in the book of Acts, he's prominent here in chapter 1. He's prominent in following chapters. He's the guy who opened up the door of the gospel to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2. And then later on, as we continue on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that Peter was the guy who opened up the door of the gospel to the Gentile world as well. Peter was a leader among the disciples. I just don't think that he was the first pope. And let me explain why he was the first. Well, no, you know what? I'm going to take that back. Peter was the first pope. It's just there's nothing in the scriptures to indicate that there were any succeeding popes fulfilling Peter. It's one thing to say that Peter had this natural leadership role among the disciples. It's another thing entirely to say that he passed that role on to somebody else, right? And there's no indication in the scriptures. None whatsoever. I'll say it one more time. None whatsoever that Peter passed on his office or authority to anybody else. Yes, he was a natural leader among the disciples and God used him that way. But it seems that that ended when Peter was martyred. So here's Peter as a spokesman. He's a leader of this first group of the apostles. And he speaks out in verse 16. He says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. I got to say, this shows a wisdom in Peter that we didn't often see in him before. He began by noting that Judas didn't spoil God's plan. Instead, he fulfilled it in saying that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And this is something that only wise and mature disciples can see in the aftermath of evil, is that God was fulfilling his plan in it all along. And then Luke's historical note there in verse 18 calls attention to how Judas died. Matthew chapter 27 says that Judas hanged himself, but apparently in the process of hanging himself, he collapsed or fell. Some people believe that maybe the rope broke. He fell in the attempt and he was killed by the impact of falling from the tree in the field of blood. It was a field of blood because Judas spilled his own blood there, but it was also a field of blood because it was purchased with the blood money with which Judas received to betray Jesus. And so now in verse 20, after explaining all this, Peter says, For it is written. For it is written. He's quoting from two separate Psalms, and he shows why God wanted them to choose another disciple to officially replace Judas. Now, you know what's really wonderful and notable about this? Friends, this is the first time in the Bible that we see Peter quoting Scripture. First time. Wasn't that interesting? Of all the times you hear Peter all throughout the Gospels, Peter's saying this, Peter's saying that, Peter's making this comment and that comment, Peter's confronting Jesus, Peter's confronting other people all the time. Now he's finally quoting the Bible. And he stands up in the midst of the disciples and goes, Guys, it's written. I judge that from this psalm and from this psalm, what God is speaking to us is that we should Pick somebody to replace Judas so that we will have 12 disciples once again. And friends, that was relying on God's word. This was notable reliance on God's word. They got together and they said, listen, let's look to the word of God. Should we replace Judas or shouldn't we replace him? And I can imagine in my mind, I don't know that it happened, we can imagine in our mind, there's a little bit of debate going about, well, I think we should replace him, I think we shouldn't replace him. Peter stands up and says, guys, I judge from the word of God that we should replace him. 
And this is why, based on this psalm and based on this psalm, I think it's telling us that we should replace him. Matter of fact, these are the psalms that he quotes from. First of all, he says in verse 20, Let his habitation be desolate. Now, David was the writer of these quoted psalms, and he knew what it was like to be betrayed by someone else. And when David was a fugitive from Saul, a man named Doeg betrayed him, and many people died as a result. And David may have penned those very words in reference to this betrayer. That man, Doeg, betrayed him. Let his habitation be desolate. But then again, he also says, let another take his office. You see, when David was betrayed, he desired that the betrayer would be desolate and that another person would fill the betrayer's office. And it wasn't hard to understand that the son of David, that is Jesus the Messiah himself, who David often prefigured, that he would desire the same thing. Peter's saying, guys, I judge that from these prophecies that were originally uttered by David, but now we apply to Jesus, we judge that by these prophecies, Jesus wants this office filled. And by the way, that's something else notable right here. Not only did they have a notable desire and, and understanding of God's word, but they had a desire for God's will. You know, all the disciples go, well, let's fill Judas's office. Let's not fill Judas's office. Let's do this. Let's do that. But when it got down to it, what does God want, right? And they wanted what God wanted. And when Peter showed them from the scriptures, look, here it is right here in these two Psalms. Peter shows us from the scriptures that, yes, it is time to fill this office. They said, well, look, we want what God wants. We're not here to fulfill our own opinions here, are we? We're here to fulfill what God wants. And so they said, this is what we're going to do. And so starting at verse 21, they begin on the decision. See, because here's the point, right? You got 120 people in the room. Which one of them is going to be the guy to replace Judas in the apostolic office? Which one? How do you make a decision like that? Well, here they go. Verse 21. Peter continues to speak. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. So here they propose two based on these qualifications. Verse 22 gives us the qualifications. First of all, they say, one of these must become a witness with us. We need another witness. We need another one so that we have 12 witnesses. Now, they were bold enough to make this decision because they had leading from God's word telling them that this was the decision that they should make. And they didn't sense a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? That's to come yet in Acts chapter 2. This is before the tremendous outpouring of Pentecost. But God did not leave them without guidance. They knew what to do from the Word of God. And friends, I think this is a very important principle. Even if you don't have a special leading or anointing or something like that from the Holy Spirit, you can still know what to do. And how do you know what to do? You know it from the Word of God. God, how are you going to guide me in your Word? What are the principles? How can I obey you and give you glory in this decision? Isn't this one of the greatest factors in making godly decisions? And just saying, God, I'm going to do your will. I want you to guide me according to your Word. 
Now listen, I would say this. Even if we do sense a special guidance from the Holy Spirit, we still have God's voice permanently established in His Word. Any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit will never disobey God's written Word to us. I'll say that again. Any time somebody perceives guidance from the Holy Spirit, but it goes against the Word of God in their life, I'll say it gently, but I'll say it firmly, you're wrong. God never contradicts His Word. And so God isn't leading you, my friend. God isn't leading you to steal. God isn't leading you to cheat. God isn't leading you by the Holy Spirit to commit adultery. No, no, that goes against His Word. It's not the leading of God. How do I know what I should do in this situation? Here's the Word of God written out for us. We obey His Word. That's why they say very boldly in verse 22, one of these must become a witness with us. We need a twelfth to fulfill the role. But, but who should do it? Verse 22, verse 21, I should say, tells us that it should be one who has accompanied us all the time. Whoever replaced Judas must be one who was with them ever since John baptized them and who stayed with them all through the days of Jesus' earthly ministry and saw the resurrected Jesus. Now this reminds us of something that we don't often think of, right? Oftentimes we think of Jesus. There's Jesus. He's walking in the region of Galilee and doing his ministry. And there's Jesus and 12 guys behind him, right? No, there was Jesus and 12 and then a bunch more. The twelve were not the only ones who were in Jesus' theological school, so to speak. They weren't the only ones who said, Jesus, you are a rabbi. Now, the twelve had a special place. The twelve had a special place instruction. But the twelve were not the only ones. There were others who were following Jesus from the time of John the Baptist all the way through the end. You know what I find very interesting about this? is we find no evidence that they came to these qualifications from the Scriptures. Does the scripture say this? Choose thou therefore one who followed me from the very beginning. Doesn't say that, does it? No, what they did was they just thought about it. That they didn't have a special leading of the Holy Spirit, not that I'm aware of in the scriptures. We might say this. You know what they were using when they came up with these qualifications? How about this? They use sanctified common sense. Do you know what that is? I find a shocking number of people who don't seem to know what that is sanctified common sense where you just actually just sort of think through a thing logically according to the scriptures you don't have a specific leading from the word of god but they're just thinking you know what man if we're going to pick somebody to replace judas why not one of the guys who's been with us from their very beginning that makes a lot of sense and i think god was leading them exactly that way it seemed to be a logical common sense requirement for the successor to judas's office as a disciple. And you know, this common sense was sanctified because it came as they were in obedience, as they were in fellowship, as they were in prayer, as they were in the scriptures, as they desired God's will. Friends, this was notable, sanctified common sense. It didn't answer everything, right? And I don't think our sanctified common sense is going to answer everything. But listen, it'll often narrow down the options and it narrowed it down to two people for them, right? Listen, I wish oftentimes Christians would just use their sanctified common sense more, right? You, you know what it's like. Maybe you've been this person or you've talked to this person, right? And they're telling you about some plan, something that they're thinking of the future, and you're just thinking, what, are you crazy? 
God hasn't given you a leading on this. The, the scriptures don't give you a leading on this. Why don't you just use a little sanctified common sense in it and do what the Holy Spirit would sort of logically lead you to do? That seems at least in this element, that's what the disciples were doing. But in verse 22, they decide that one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. This was the main job of the disciples that would replace Judas, to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And by the way, now that Jesus was ascended to heaven, it was more important than ever to have a witness of his resurrection. Now, friends, you and I are also witnesses of his resurrection. But we're witnesses of the resurrection by trusting and proclaiming the apostolic testimony, the eyewitness testimony. And our own testimony that Jesus lives in and through us, but primarily through the eyewitness apostolic testimony that's recorded for us in the Word of God. So here, they basically have the parameters for the decision that they're going to make. We know God wants us to replace Judas. Using some sanctified common sense, we're going to say that it's a guy who's been with us from the very beginning and who can be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And now, here we go, let's make the decision. And this is where it gets kind of weird, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And we really go, great, they're praying again. Isn't it wonderful? They prayed first, and now they prayed again. They're praying a lot because they know it's a big decision. Who's going to replace Judas? Who's going to be numbered among the 12 disciples? We're going to pray all over again. By the way, can I say one more thing? This is another example of doing what Jesus did. Did you know that Jesus, before he chose the disciples, stayed up all night in prayer before he chose them? Now listen, if Jesus prayed in a remarkable way before making a big decision, don't you think we should? Don't you think it's important for the disciples? So, so you could just imagine one of the disciples saying, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 Peter, haven't we already prayed about this? Yeah, let's pray some more. But, but we already prayed a lot. Let's pray a little more. Don't you remember that Jesus prayed all night before he chose us? Considering some of the disciples, you wonder if he shouldn't have prayed even a little more before he chose us. But listen, you say Jesus prayed all night before he chose us. Should not we pray a little bit more? And so that's exactly what they did. And then in verse 26, that's where it gets weird because it says, and then they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now this is the part that makes people go, what? Friends, do you know what casting lots is? It's like rolling dice. It's like drawing straws. So here they are, they do all these great spiritual things, right? They're obeying Jesus. They're in the word. They're in prayer. They're in unity. They're in fellowship. They're, they're, they're doing what Jesus would do. They're using sanctified common sense. And what? They get out the dice and they go Yahtzee? What? Is, I mean, <laughs> what, what is this? Now, many people have questioned the method for choosing one of these two men. And it seems that despite all their wonderful prior spiritual steps... They ended up just rolling dice to pick the winner. It's fair to ask, is this any way to choose an apostle? Well, listen, I have to say, 
I'm not so hard on the disciples here. I'm really not. Matter of fact, I think that what they were doing was expressing reliance upon God. You see, they they weren't yet filled with the Holy Spirit as they would be. We're going to talk about that in coming weeks. But they still wanted to choose a method that would make them rely on God. And maybe they were remembering Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Let me read that to you. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, you roll the dice, but the Lord makes the decisions. And I imagine they're thinking of this verse. Lord, we don't know which one, this guy Matthias or the other guy. We don't know which one, Lord. But you know They both seem qualified. They both seem good. Lord, we'll just leave it up to you. Throw the dice. And they were relying on the Lord. It was their way of doing it. Now listen, I know it's easy for us to stand back and say, listen, what are we going to do? Start rolling dice for our decisions before the Lord? Is that what we should do? Well, let me tell you this. Rolling dice would actually be a superior way than the way many Christians discern God's will. You would be better off rolling dice and just saying, Lord, I'll just trust you and lead me through the roll. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody do that. We're not handing out little dice kits as you leave the service this morning. But I sincerely mean it. Many Christians do such a poor job of seeking God's will and and trying to discern Him in the decisions that they make with their life. How about this? Many Christians, what do they rely on when they make their decisions? Purely on emotions. 100%. That's all their fuel. What do I feel like doing? It's all emotions. You know what? You'd be better off rolling dice. How about this? Some Christians rely only on circumstances. They don't look to the word. They don't look to the eye of faith. They don't pray. They're not in fellowship with others. It's all circumstances. Well, if the circumstances go the way, it must be the Lord. It must be the Lord. You know what? Maybe not. I think you'd probably be better off just rolling dice than to only look to circumstances. How about this? Some Christians, they rely only on their carnal desires. It's just kind of a gut. What do I want? What do I feel? Other Christians, how about this one? When it comes time for them to make a decision, what do they do? They go counseling shopping. You know what that's like, right? Where you pretty much know what you want to do, and now your job is is just to find somebody who will give you the counsel that you want. So you go to talk to this man or this woman, and they tell you, well, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do the other thing. Well, forget them. I'll go find somebody else. And you just shop around until you get the right counseling you want, right? Friend, you'd be better off rolling dice. Look, what I'm just trying to say is that many of us as Christians do such a poor job seeking God and getting our hearts in communion and reliance on Him and then just making godly decisions that it would be better for us to roll dice. So I'm not so critical of the disciples here, especially because look at how it goes out, verse 26. It says, And the lot fell on Matthias. Now some people insist that Matthias was the wrong choice. And that he proves that the casting of lots was wrong in choosing the disciples because the decision was not right. And the idea is this, is that God would have eventually chosen Paul if they would have left the office vacant. Because don't we kind of read this and go, man, should have been Paul. Should have been Paul. It shouldn't have been this guy, Matthias. Who's Matthias? But listen, friends, let's understand. 
I think Peter accurately understood that God did not want to leave the office vacant and wait for Paul. Matter of fact, when does Paul come to faith? Saul of Tarsus later on? It's going to happen much later in the book of Acts, 15, 20 years later after this happens. God did not want to leave the office vacant, right? We already knew that from the scriptures. It's kind of interesting. Paul clearly considered himself an apostle, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that he was one born out of due time. Paul recognized, look, I'm out of order. I'm out of sync with the other apostles. Great for the 12, but God called me in a unique way. I don't think Paul walked around saying, it should have been me instead of Matthias. I just don't think he felt that way. And some people act as if it would have been good to leave it vacant. No, I don't believe so. You see, if that office were left unfulfilled, it might have been seen as a victory for Satan. And what do I mean by that? Well, as if this was the case. Jesus chose 12 apostles, but Satan picked off one of them. And therefore, Jesus' desire to have 12 apostles was defeated and Satan won a victory. And it's if Peter says, no, Satan's not going to get a victory here. We're going to replace Judas. Now, I find it very interesting that after they replaced Judas, there was never an attempt after that to replace other apostles that died. Nowhere in the New Testament is there this idea that we have to keep this committee of 12 apostles from the time of the apostles up until the return of Jesus. Never. Because later on, we're going to find out in the book of Acts that the first one of the apostles to die was the apostle named James. You know, Peter, James, and John. That James, one of the big three. He's martyred by Herod. And you know what? When he's martyred, there is no attempt to replace him. None. Because he laid his life down in a glorious way as a martyr of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as a shameful betrayer as it was with Judas. And so... Uh, even though we read nothing more of Matthias in the New Testament, I don't think we should assume that he was a failure as an apostle. Don't, don't think that. When you get to heaven and meet Matthias, don't look at him and go, oh, you were the dud, right? <laughs> no, friends, do you understand that except for Peter and John, we don't read anything about the other 12 apostles all the rest of the book of Acts. If Matthias was a dud, then there were nine other duds as well. So this is it. I don't think we can say that he was any more of a failure than Matthew or Andrew or Thomas or any of the others. Now there is very one, or very one, there's one very interesting thing to think about. Brought up by Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. You don't have to turn there, I'll just tell you about it. In Revelation 21, verse 14, it says that the new Jerusalem has 12 foundations and on each one of the foundations is written the name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And for some people, it drives them crazy to think, well, nobody thinks for a minute that Judas's name is on there, right? The question is, are you going to see Matthias's name up on there as one of the 12 foundations? Or will it be Paul's name on there? That is going to be something that we have to wait to heaven to see. But I think it's a great question to find out which one is going to be on there. But at the end of it all, verse 26, he was numbered with the 11 apostles. 
You see, nobody can fault all the things they did before they cast lots. And we must believe that they were put into a place where they made a godly decision because they lined up their lives in a place where they could make a good godly decision before the Lord. Friends, let me put it this way. We wouldn't make many wrong decisions if we did all the things that the disciples did before they made this decision. What did they do? Well, they obeyed. They were in unity. They were in fellowship. They were in prayer. They were in the scriptures. They wanted to do God's will. They used their sanctified common sense. They did what Jesus did. And they did all they could do to rely upon God. Now, friends, you do that. And you're not going to make many bad decisions. But let me tell you what I think is one of the most important, critical things that I would run into with the Bible college students regarding the big decisions that they would make in their life and that you may have to make in your life. You know what oftentimes they would seem to forget in this whole equation of making decisions? They would forget the great love of God. You see, they would almost think that God was deliberately torturing them with this decision thing, right? And that God was just saying, okay, you know, I, I put the little bean underneath one of the three walnut shells. And if you pick the wrong one, wow, the whammy's going to come upon you from heaven. And they would really almost have that attitude as if God was there to torture them. Can I just try to tell them, Ingle and I would both do this over and over again. We'd say, why don't you just start learning how to rest in the love of God? Put your life in alignment with God. Trust him, love him, obey him, seek him. And then relax and let the Lord work through your sanctified common sense. And trust that God isn't going to abandon you. He loves you and he'll see you through the decision and through the consequences of it. Instead of being all bound up with fear. Oh no, Lord, I don't know what to do. Why don't you just trust in the love of God, get in alignment with him, relax and let the Lord lead you forward. Because God loves you that much to make decisions in your life a blessing point, not a cursing point. You know, I've experienced this very personally in my own life, that there were big decisions that we've had to make in the past, that we have to make right now, and that God's going to lead us to make in the future. You know, I think God's taught us along the way that we can just trust in a loving God. Now, a big part of this is to get your life in alignment with His, right? One thing that frightens me is to see Christians making big life decisions when, well, to just put it bluntly, they're walking in the flesh. There, there's uh, areas of glaring disobedience in their life. They're not in the Word of God. They're not in prayer. They're not in fellowship with other believers. Just honestly, their life isn't in step with the Spirit of God. And yet they want to take on big decisions in their life. I always give this kind of counsel. Look, First, get your life just in sync with the Spirit of God. Uh, address any areas of glaring disobedience of your life and repent. Get into the Word of God. Pray. Fellowship with other believers. Do the things that you should be doing in your Christian life. Do these things and then just step out knowing that the Lord will guide you along the way. And don't forget to use that sanctified common sense. Now, one last thing that I need to touch on. When we talk about decision, I can never lose sight of the fact 
that the most important decision that a person makes in their life is their decision to follow Jesus Christ. This is your greatest decision. It's a decision for Jesus. And friends, I never apologize for it. I never feel guilty about it all for calling people to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Because, listen, I recognize that there may very well be people here and maybe many people here, and you have not yet made this kind of decision. Maybe you're a regular churchgoer, maybe you're not, but you know how it is. Being a regular churchgoer doesn't necessarily mean that you've decided to put your trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross to be the source of your salvation and the source of your strength in life. I make no apology for saying this is a decision that you need to make. And especially because many people drift their entire lives without coming to a place of decision. Because very rarely will a person say with all their heart, with all their mind, I decide against Jesus Christ. That's very rare, isn't it? You see, the devil, our spiritual enemy who hates us and who hates you, he has a very great interest in not bringing you to a place of decision. He wants you to forget about decision. He wants you to think that, well, do it later, do it anytime. You don't have to decide. But friends, here's a very important principle that came to me as a very young Christian. Actually, I remember hearing Greg Laurie say this when I was a very young Christian, and it's stuck in my mind ever since. He said that to be undecided is to be decided. It's to be decided against Jesus Christ. And so you need to decide. This is what you can decide about. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's a decision, isn't it? You have to decide that you're going to confess with your mouth. You have to decide that you're going to believe in your heart. If you do that, though, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is there to meet you with his salvation. Now, friends, we can break this apart in a great big theological drama and say, well, wait a minute. I thought it was about God deciding for me. Here's the point. You decide for him and you'll find out that he decided for you all along. Come around to the God who has decided for you by making your decision for him. This is. This is the most important decision that God will ever ask us to make.